Welcome to Days of Roar, the Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. My name is Mark Gorosh. I'm here with Tigers beat writer Evan Petzold for second podcast of 2024. How'd your week go besides Michigan winning last Monday night? Yeah, that was pretty awesome, man. I've been doing okay this week. Look, before we jump into all the talk about baseball, I want to take a minute and just reflect on the life of Kurt Dozier who passed away Friday at age 65 after a brief illness. I mean, look, Kurt is, he's a dude, someone that's really close to me, covered high school, college, and professional sports as a photographer for the Detroit Free Press uh, for over 28 years. I mean, he was somebody who was always around at every single game. Talented photographer, no doubt about it. His photos are going to live forever, but I'll always remember Kurt as a friend and a mentor. I spent time with him at spring training in Lakeland over the years, but last year's spring training in particular, I got really close with Kurt because he stayed in the same house with Jeff Seidel and me. We ate ribs, a lot of ribs, game plan for our day-to-day coverage of the Tigers, and then also talked about deeper things in life. And um, I'm going to miss Kurt's photos in my stories, no doubt, but I'm also, um, more than anything, going to miss spending time with him and, and learning from his wisdom that he was always willing to share with me. So this year's spring training won't be the same. He's going to forever be in my heart. Rest in peace to Kurt Dozier and you know my thoughts and prayers with his family. I have seen nothing but the highest of accolades for him. And it's a huge loss for the freak, to say the least. And just a huge loss for humanity. Just not enough great human beings around anymore. And to lose one so young is tragic. So condolences to his family. Condolences to the, all the people and his many, many friends all around the city of Detroit and the freak. No doubt. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been the week. I mean, it, it, it really did kind of hit me in a weird spot. I'm um, just considering the relationship that I have with him, especially, I mean, we're getting ready for spring training. And, you know, Jeff Seidel wrote a great story today talking about some of our spring training adventures. And he mentioned it too. And I feel the same way. It's just like, we're looking forward to spring training because we know that, you know, the three of us are going to be back again together. And we had so much fun last year. It was awesome. We had a really, really good time. So he will definitely be missed. I know it's a sad way to start the podcast. But that's kind of what I got right now. Well, it's always a sad uh, day when you lose anybody that's important to you and a guy that's as great as he was, yeah, it's, it's a big loss for you guys. So as I said, condolences. All right. So let's jump straight into the big two. We got a guest, a really good guest. And I want to try to knock out these two questions so we can get to our guest. Okay. First question of the big two. Let's talk about our buddy Parker Meadows. Let's project Parker Meadows production on offense and defense in 2024. It's kind of a wild card. Had a totally up and down 145, 45-day inauguration with the Detroit Tigers. Give me your thoughts on what your expectations are. We've talked about him a little bit last week. You talked a little bit about him in projecting the starting lineup in your 2.0 story this week. Tell me the more you look at him, what you're finding. Well, are we going to mention why we're talking about Parker Meadows today? It's because I, you know, wrote 10 predictions for the Tigers in 2024. And that was some of which, you know, we talked about on last week's episode. But I wrote that Parker Meadows is going to hit below 216. And, you know, Mark shot me a message right when he saw the story come out. And he said, oh, boy, Parker Meadows is going to give you the side eye when spring training comes around. And maybe he will. Maybe he won't. We'll see. I, I, it's obviously not personal. Look, I just, I, I'm not really so sure about Parker Meadows to play. I, I think he is going to be. An elite center fielder across the board. No question about it. He's going to run like nobody's business. You go watch what he did last year on the base pass. It's incredible. It's insane. I mean, this guy is 
a 250 batting average away from being like an elite center fielder across the board, in my opinion, being an, an all-star caliber center fielder. Right now, we know he's going to play great defense. The question just comes down to, is this guy going to hit? I mean, last year, he hit 232 with three home runs, 17 walks, and 37 strikeouts in 37 games. Batting average plummeted down to 191 before a strong nine-game finish in which he hit 361. So hitting 361, that bumps that 191 average up to 232 to finish the season. He's an elite defender. He's an elite runner. He has the raw skills to be the Tigers center fielder day in and day out, regardless of his offensive production. I think he can be the guy for the Tigers. The question is going to be how much can he hit? And I think Parker Meadows is going to hit above 216 at some point in his career, maybe as soon as 2025. But is he going to do it in 2024? I'm not so sure. His first full season in the big leagues. Like, don't forget Spencer Torkelson, who everybody is now raving about as a player who could soon hit 250 with 40 home runs. That's what I predicted. And I think he could very well do that in his third MLB season. Don't forget that he hit 203 in year one. So for Parker Meadows, man, if you're out there listening, it's not personal at all. I love your game. I think you're going to be a great hitter. I just think that the game of baseball is really, really hard. And we've seen great hitters, guys who like Spencer Torkelson, who, who was great, right? You know, really struggle in that first year, that first full season. That's where I'm at with him. But Mark, it doesn't even matter what he does offensively because defensively, he's just so good. He, he's just so good. He's an everyday center fielder, maybe one of the better ones in baseball, maybe top five. Well, I think, yes. He, well, top seven or eight to start. Sure. We need to, I, I hesitate to say too much. I'm not big on small sample size, okay? But, you know, as far as hitting goes, look, for a long time, I was pretty vocally critical of Parker Meadows' offensive capabilities. First three years in the system, you know, I I like to analyze swings a little bit. And to be really blunt about it, Parker Meadows had a terrible swing. And he's done the work to change those things doesn't even remotely resemble anything like what he used to be. But I have a few pieces of evidence I'd like to at least introduce to try to say that, you know, first of all, yeah, I understand that Spencer Torkelson struggled a lot, but Spencer Torkelson also hit 267 in his first year in the minor leagues and 229 in his second year. And after the swing changes, Parker Meadows hit 270 and 256. So, you know, is there some comparability? Yeah, maybe even more. But more importantly, Meadows walked, you know, between 10.5 and 11% of the time the last two years in the minor leagues at double and triple A. And he runs like a deer. So it's really, you know, speed never slumps, brother. And if he's hitting 215, it's really going to be frightening because, you know, he should hit two, he, you know, if he's a 215 hitter, he should hit 230 just based on the fact that if there's any ball that any defender on the infield has to move more than two steps in any direction or bobbles, he's going to beat the ball to first base. He's left-handed and he's fast as all get out. So I think it's pretty difficult to project him hitting that low. Uh, the other thing is, you know, a lot of people don't think he has power. He had 20 homers at Erie in 22. He had 19 at Toledo, three more at the major league level last year. So that's 22. So, you know, expecting him to hit 15 homers if he gets 550 plate appearances is not a stretch in the least. 
So I'm not saying I'm the high man on Parker Meadows, but I can promise you I'm not the low man. I guess I'm I guess I'm just the low man then and, and I'm okay with being that right now. I mean, look, the guy has a history of high strikeout rates, but again, in the past two seasons, he's maintained above average walk rates while hitting over 250 in the minor league. Those are good things to see. I think, you know, defensively the Tigers haven't had a center fielder like him since Austin Jackson and Curtis Granderson when they had those two players from 2004 until 2014. The combination of Granderson from 04 to 09 and then Austin Jackson from 2010 to 14. So I think he fills this decade-long need because of his range, his arm strength, his sprint speed in the outfield. I don't know if he's going to hit like Jackson and Granderson, but again, like I think if he hits 250, he's an all-star type of player. I just don't know if he does it in year one of the first full season. That's nothing against his potential or his ceiling. That's kind of what I got on him, though. I understand your concerns. I Like I said, though, I think there's some compensating factors that really – make me feel much better about Parker Meadows. I think, you know, just based on the Tigers lineup, you know, his capacity to play plus-plus defense also has a strangely strong arm for center field that, you know, I'm pretty excited to see what he can do. And like I said, if he hits 230 with 15 homers and walks 10% of the time and steals 20-plus bases, because if he hits 230 and walks close to 10% of the time, he's going to, steal more than 20 bases. He's going to be a three-war player. So, should be pretty interesting. I think we'll ask our guest about him. He has his own opinions. Let's move on to question two of the big two. Ev, what are you hearing about the free agent market? Some names we've mentioned on the pod this offseason. Think the Tigers are finished? Because I sure do. And, you know, is there any way that maybe we sneak somebody in we're not expecting? Yeah, not so sure about all of that, but just two names that I wanted to touch back on. J.D. Martinez, we talked about him a little bit. I know you have your opinions about him. I have my opinions about maybe Justin Henry Malloy over him. But I just want to update like listeners that no interest from the Tigers so far this offseason. I checked back on that. There was a story that came out on MLB.com that mentioned the Tigers as like a fit for him or possibly showing some interest. So I kind of circled around and asked a couple people. No interest from the Tigers so far in J.D. Martinez. And then Shota Imanaga, we talked about him a lot. His posting window closes Thursday, January 11th at 5 p.m. The Athletic mentioned the Chicago Cubs, the San Francisco Giants, the Boston Red Sox, the Los Angeles Angels, and the New York Mets as teams that are in the mix for Imanaga. I'm told just as of recently, the Tigers are not in the mix at this point in the process. Obviously, they kicked the tires on him a little bit earlier in the offseason, but it seems like that's not going to happen. So, just two names, one to you know give you guys an update on. I don't think Imanaga is probably getting as much money as maybe he expected to get or as many years as he expected to get. And there's a lot of hype about him, especially before Yoshinobu Yamamoto signed. And now that Yamamoto has signed with the Dodgers for a record deal, it seems like maybe teams are not as interested in Imanaga as it once seemed like they were. So we'll see how those two guys go. I just wanted to throw out an update for the listeners. Okay. Anything about relievers or any of these secondary players that you're hearing anything about or no? We haven't really checked in on those. I mean, uh, the Tigers, look, they've picked up Andrew Chafin. They went out and got Shelby Miller. They've got two relievers. They've got a lot of bullpen options. You can go up and down and kind of look at what the roster might project to be like. And I mean, look, when you're projecting Bo Brisky and Joey Wentz, it's kind of like the last two guys, but you already have Holton and you have you have Tyler Holden, you have Will Vest, you have Shelby Miller, you have Andrew Chapin, you have Alex Lang, you have Jason Foley. Those guys are locked in. you got to leave some room for competition. I'd be shocked if they're not going after anybody other than minor league deals. Like They just brought back Andrew Vasquez on a minor league deal. I could see them you know, trying to find a couple more of those guys and, and bring them into camp, see what they got. 
But at that point, I, I, it sure seems like they're done. And the same thing is true for the rotation. When you look at, you got Tarek Skubal's locked in, Kenta Maeda's locked in, Jack Flaherty's locked in. I think Matt Manning's going to be locked in too. Casey Mize, obviously another you know arbitration player who's going to be getting a raise. He's going to be making over a million dollars this year. I think the fact that you have Maeda on a $14 million deal, you know, Flaherty on a $14 million deal, Skubal projected for $2.6 million, and Mize projected for $1.2 million. Well, Skubal and Mize projected for that in salary arbitration. I think those guys are, they have to be in the rotation to start the year. You don't pay those guys that kind of money to not have them in the rotation. Mize, we'll see where the health is at. But, and then Manning, obviously, you got to figure out if this guy's going to be able to stay healthy for a full season and both healthy and successful. So those are the question marks there. But I think there's just so much depth, both in the rotation and with the relievers, that is there really any other room for real big league ads? I'm not so sure at this point. Do you know, Eva, I am just kind of patiently waiting. You got Snell, you got Montgomery, you got Imanaga. I want to see once starting pitcher market kind of loosens up a little bit, see who the winners and the losers are. Wouldn't shock me if a team or two at least engage with the Tigers. I also weirdly want to see what happens with Wander Franco because it would not shock me if somehow Wander Franco ends up playing. And if he plays, you know, it kind of starts making Tampa, if they actually truly were willing to move Isaac Paredes, it becomes a a real possibility because Caminero is going to have to play somewhere. I know they got him playing left, but it wouldn't shock me if he would play third then. And, I mean, if he could play third then and they could explore the starting pitching market and, you know, if they're seriously looking to move Paredes, they would probably do it then. So... It's a long shot, something just weird to pay attention to, but I'm not sure. In the next few weeks, I think things will start happening a little bit. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to have Scott Chu from Pitchers List, a senior fantasy analyst. Really, really great stuff. A lot of data, a lot of interesting things to say about some Tiger players, a Michigander. We'll be back in 60 with our guests. And we're back. And I would like to tell you, I'm excited to bring in our guest tonight. His name is Scott Chu, senior fantasy analyst for Pitchers List. Works with another guest we had on recently, Nick Pollock, getting ready for fantasy season. But mostly, Scott's done some great job job on a bunch of different types of charts and different types of analytics he's done on hitters and pitchers. And we want to talk to him at least how it applies to a bunch of the Tiger players for 2024, what he might think is going to happen based on some of their 2023 bad ball performances. Scott, how you doing, buddy? You're a Michigander. Tell us about that. I am. I'm, I'm from Southwest Michigan. I've been across the state a little bit. I, I went to college over at Grand Valley State University, went to law school over at Michigan State. I now, you know, I grew up and now live in uh, Portage over in Southwest Michigan. I'm technically from Vicksburg, but, you know, it's all kind of close by here, Portage, Kalamazoo area. And I've been a Tiger fan since I started watching baseball. So I'm, I'm excited to be here to talk about Tigers in, recently, in recent years, doing podcasts and articles about fantasy I've had a hard time talking about Tigers. <laughs> Not been a lot to talk about, so excited now. Well, well, Scott, you just put out your top 200 hitters for 2024. Are you going to tell me first and foremost, like 
how many words in that story? And then also, how'd you come up with where you put, you know, the Tigers players that we saw on that list? Spencer Torkelson at 60, Riley Green at 82, Kerry Carpenter at 105, Parker Meadows at 173, and then Colt Keith at, at 183. What all goes into creating a list of the top 200 hitters? How long did it take you? And, and kind of what does all that look like for you? I mean, basically, it's like writing a short novel, right? Like it is, it's like 20 something thousand words, I think that I ended up in there. Maybe more. It was, it, it's all a blur. It, it's tough. You know, this time of year, we don't have a lot of projections that are out there, right? Like you can't just go look at six different projection sites on fan graphs and come up with something. I mean, you really have to look at previous year performance and you do a lot of, you know, almost scouting, right? Because you just have to get a feel for what could this guy be? We still, I mean, by the time you're writing that, you don't know who's going to be on the team necessarily. We haven't watched the, the, like the, the position battles play out in the spring. So it's this weird mix of like, not just projecting what this player could do, but what opportunity might they even get to do that Uh, with the Tigers? They do have a lot of guys who who seem like they're going to be locked into jobs, right? Like Spencer Torkelson's the first baseman, period, right? And I loved everything about the 30 home run power. I think the batting average can be even better, right? Like he, he had some bad luck. I think sometimes he sprayed the ball a little bit much and he can really get more power out of just pulling it. He really found that later in the year. He was easy to put up there and I really wanted to put him up higher and higher, right? But you just, you have to be, you know, a little bit careful on the fantasy side because like, look, could the batting average stay lower than I want it to be and lower than I think it could be? Yes, because of the, you know, because of the way he hits the ball and the fact that he's a young player. This guy's 24 years old. He's going to have periods where he struggles to adapt and adjust. But we did see steps forwards in, in how he like makes decisions, right? And we have these really cool stats over at Pitcher List that we've come up with using um, our PLV model, which really tries to get on a pitch-by-pitch basis what players are are doing. That PLV stuff's really cool for pitchers. That's why they designed it. But I really love it for hitters because it gives us an ability to say, okay, based on the pitch you got, when it was in the count, what, you know, what kind of pitch was it? How, you know, how was it moving? What was the movement? What was the spin? All these things we can say, did this player do better than the model expected? Or which is basically, did they do better than average against this specific pitch in this specific scenario? Uh, or did they do worse than average? And we can take all that, slam it together and look at things like decision value, right? Like, are they choosing to swing at the right times, right? Or, you know, we have, we've always had stats that said, this is how often a player swings, but we've got a cool swing aggression stat that says, did, was this player more or less likely than average to swing at that pitch, right? So we can take a look at, hey, some guys seem like they're really aggressive, but it turns out they just get tons of pitches to hit. Right. And some guys like maybe Javi Baez are exactly as aggressive as we expected. Right. They swing at lots of things. Uh, we, so we have these really fun sets or like contact ability, not just how often they put the bat on the ball, but how often they put the bat on the ball with the specific pitches they received. Not a tiger, but a guy like Ellie De La Cruz had this crazy strikeout rate. You'd think, oh, this guy can't put his bat on the ball. It's actually not true. His problem was that he swung at everything, but he was way more likely to make contact against certain pitches than most players because he had amazing bat ability. He just shouldn't have been swinging at some of that stuff, right? You know, the old Vlad Guerrero hitting the pitch that bounced, right? That's a great contact ability, even if you, but he shouldn't be doing it in the first place. So that, but you know, look, obviously a lot of those factors have to do with age and experience as hitters. Some like Javi Baez, you know, that's just the style of hitting they have. Guy like Ellie Dela Cruz, I would assume, 
as each set of 150 at-bats passes by during the course of his early days, he hopefully, the Reds hope, his decision-making will continue to improve. improve. So his level of selectivity and his comprehension about what pitches to hit are going to change over time. So let's swing that to the Tigers because you take a guy like Cole Keith, who's shown pretty elite decision-making, a reasonable level of patience, and a capacity to absolutely do damage when pitchers make mistakes. How difficult is it to project a guy like that who has seen zero major league pitches? Yeah, so the real challenge there with most players is how are they going to handle those major league breaking balls, right? How are they going to manage against the fact that almost every pitcher they see is going to have two breakers they can throw for strikes, right? Or at least one very good one that they can throw for strikes. That's something we don't get to see those guys always do in the minors, right? There's a lot of guys who can get through the minors spitting on every breaking pitch they see because most pitchers can't throw those consistently for strikes. You get to the majors, everyone can do that. I found that to be one of the most difficult things projecting these players. Now, what you like to see from a guy like Colt Keith is one, he does keep the strikeouts down, right? Like, you know, I, I usually tell folks expect about a 5% bump in strikeout rate when they go from the minor or from like double AA, A, triple A to the majors, because there's just more guys that throw better strikes. So that takes some adjustment. I'm glad you talked about how players adapt as they play in the major leagues, because that's actually what we saw with Ellie De La Cruz, right? We saw him get better at making decisions the more pitches he saw. The more he realized how major league pitchers were attacking him, he got better at making those decisions. And that's really what I look for. It's not just how they did in the minor leagues, of course. It's when they get to the majors, do they start making adjustments? Do we see them, you know, moving uphill? We actually saw that in 2022 with Spencer Torkelson where it wasn't a great season for him in 2022, but we saw, the, we saw the skills underneath get better as the season went on, right? The results didn't show up quite yet, but we saw better decision-making. We saw him hitting the ball with more power consistently. We saw him do more with the pitches that he got later on, which is what sort of got me excited about him even coming into last season, saying, look, that stuff was happening. That's what you need to see. What you don't want to see is players sort of stagnate and just be what they were the moment they got to the big leagues. How about doing damage on certain pitches? Because, you know, as Evan and I progressed through 2023 with Torkelson, we tried to encourage him to hopefully comprehend the idea of pulling the baseball and pulling the baseball in the air. And if he did that, everything else would sort of fall into place, which is, thank goodness, exactly what happened. So when you're looking at data on a hitter, you know, what's it telling you when you start seeing, you know, players understanding what pitches they can handle and what pitches they can do damage with? Yeah. You know, something that really, you know, what makes the elite players, there's a lot of things that make an elite player, but the the Juan Soto's, the Mike Trout's, the Shohei Otani's of the world, it's not just that they can do it the one time. It's that when pitchers change their approach, they notice that a hitter is starting to pull the ball in the air more. They start to attack them differently. I mean, what made Miggy so great was, te- you know, over time, teams attacked him in different ways. And it did not take him long to figure out how to deal with that, you know, especially in his prime. You know, sometimes they'd want to, you know, pound him inside with fastballs. And he'd say, okay, I know how to deal with that. Then other times they'd say, okay, let's try, you know, this stuff away. He figures out how to deal with that because being a good baseball player is all about making constant adjustments all the time. 
That's why, you know, when I'm on Twitter, I like to post these rolling charts because a guy isn't a 300 hitter, right? He's different. I mean, he's got a different average almost every single day of the year, right? And watching those ups and downs really helps you understand like what, what's happening with this player. How, you know, what is the, not just patterns, but like growth, especially with young players, like, like a Spencer Torkelson. I mean, if you look at, we've got this cool power stat, which isn't just home runs. It's about, again, based on the pitches he got, did he hit it harder than we expected? Did he get more bases than we expected when he made contact based on the model? And what you see with Torkelson is steady up and then a big spike, right? Like he goes from being like a average, then above average, and all of a sudden elite power based on our metrics. And he's done it once, which is awesome because showing me you can do it once means you could do it again. And we also saw him do that in 2022. We had we saw him make these big jumps in this power because he starts to figure things out. I think as he continues to mature at the major league level, the more consistent he can be with that, the quicker he can get back to those elite power moments when they go away, because they always go away for a little bit, right? You know, guys struggle, guys get in slumps. The quicker he gets back to being able, oh yeah, hey, you know what? I've lost it for a little bit, but I know how to get back to pulling the ball in the air. The quicker he does that, the more consistent he'll be with power. And that's when we can see that power ceiling go from like 30 home runs to 40. All it, all that really needs to happen for him is get back to those good times faster. So let's talk about a few other interesting players that I wouldn't say they had breakout years, but they had for the first time in their careers, pretty consistently productive seasons for the Tigers last year. So let's talk about Kerry Carpenter. For first time, got to a lot of power. Sort of faded at the end of the season. It's really hard often to maintain your swing for an entire year. But talk to us a little bit about what you might see, might have seen for from him last year and what you might see this year. Yeah. And I mean, as you mentioned, Kerry Carpenter, the first thing you talk about is that power. You know, it, there's there's that dream that if he could be an everyday outfielder slash DH for the Tigers, he could be a 30 home run hitter. He's actually quite aggressive at the plate. Again, using our model, he swung more often uh, than most players, but he was actually really good at getting his bat on the ball, even on pitches that would have been hard to hit. So it kind of balanced out that aggression really well. That's what I like to see from guys who are aggressive. You're aggressive because you can get the bat on the ball. We saw it when we had to play the Twins all the time with Luis Arias, right? Like he's he's really aggressive, but that's because he knew he could get his bat on everything. Kerry Carpenter can get his bat on a lot of pitches. I, you know, obviously lefties were something that the Tigers didn't always want him facing. I think, you know, one of the big things for him is he just really struggles to get the ball in the air against lefties. He makes the contact. It's not like they strike him out all the time. It's just that he really struggles to make that good contact, that ball in the air. Kerry Carpenter has to be hitting the ball in the air when he got that kind of power. Got to get up there because that's the only way he's really getting extra bases, right? Like he's not going to be legging out a ton of infield singles. He's got to get the ball in the air. He struggles to do that against lefties. So until he finds a way to do that, and that might be uh, that might just be a matter of being a little more selective against left-handed pitching. Some of those pitches he's got to let go, right? There are certain pitches you just can't hit very well, right? Just because you can get your bat to it doesn't mean that you can do anything with it. I think Kerry Carpenter, if he can just pull back maybe a little against the lefties, find really wait for those pitches that he can lift against lefties. I think that's how we find Kerry Carpenter, the everyday player, instead of Kerry Carpenter, maybe mostly a, you know, large side of a platoon player. And that's what I really want to see from him to make that next step. That's really good. And Scott, you mentioned getting the ball in the air. It made me think about Matt Beerling. The Tigers have thought about, hey, we can acquire Matt Beerling from the Phillies. We can get him to tap into more power. The exit velocities, you know, pre-2023 were there. They were encouraging and there were some good signs. And they thought, hey, maybe we can get him to get into more of his power. 
he's never been able to do it at the big league level. Matt Beerling is a guy who right now is penciled in to be the everyday player at third base. Where are you at on him? And is there really any hope for him to get into more power? Yeah, he's really inconsistent with the decision makings. He had these moments, you know, looking at that rolling chart where he's 75th, 90th percentile decision making, like really knowing exactly when to swing, when not to swing. And then other moments he's down in like the bottom 10%. That kind of inconsistency is really, you know, it, it tells me that, you know, there's still a lot going on mentally, maybe on exactly what he wants to swing at, how he wants to attack the pitches that he's seeing. And that home run upside. I mean, we we see these players who can hit the ball really hard, but hit it on the ground way too much. Like the the great example used to be Andy Diaz, right? You'd have all these pictures in the offseason of these like, you know, 30 inch by like just massive biceps. But like every time he hit the ball, it was straight down. Right. So if Yearling can't get the ball in the air. He's just not going to be someone I think that the Tigers can rely on because there's only so much you can do with ground balls. He's not like he's an extreme speed player. He's pretty good at making contact when he swings, but not so good that he can overcome this inconsistent decision making. The big thing for me is like, I'm not sure he can. He can't be inconsistent and hold off Colt Keith at the same time or some of the other young players that are coming up, right? If you're going to hold off Justin Henry Malloy, if you're going to hold off Colt Keith, you got to have a little more consistency, right? And I just don't see how he does that without making some major changes. The one nice thing about decision-making, right, is, you know, contactability is very much like a, like a God-given talent, right? Like you've got hand-eye coordination, you've got just the ability to get that bat out there, you've got bat speed, you can do all that stuff. Decision-making is all mental. It's something you can fix in the offseason, right? Like you can fix it at any time because anyone can learn like not to swing, right? I mean, it's obviously harder than that, right? But the three of us here all know exactly how not to swing, right? We all, we, we not swing at major league levels right now, you know? Like I can hold my bat on my shoulder pretty well. And it's all about being able to recognize those pitches as they come out with that inconsistent decision-making. I wonder how well he's able to recognize those pitches as they come out. And that's why I think sometimes he sees it well, sometimes he doesn't. But yeah, he'll have to find that consistency because it's not like he's such a good fielder. He can hold off these guys either. For sure. He's, and, that, he's no, no. and that's a big thing that Tigers fans, I think, are very concerned about is, look, to start the year, Cole Keith is going to play second base. Matt Breeling is probably going to play third base. Malloy is an outfielder. He's not an infielder anymore. And the question is going to be, OK, well, whenever Jace Young is ready, then maybe Jace Young is able to unseat Matt Breeling from third base. But that's not going to be right away. So I think a lot of Tigers fans are a little bit concerned about being stuck with Matt Veerling as an everyday player at third base if he's not getting the ball up in the air. That, that's the big concern. But look, another guy who had trouble getting the ball in the air and then was able to get it done was Riley Green, right? A guy last year we talked a lot about, you know, a guy that needed to get into his pulse side power. He finally did it. I'll never forget the home run that he hit off Justin Verlander. It was a down and in curveball and he pulled it and it was his like first pull side homer of the year. And he had this incredible month of May, you know, coming off of that. And it, and it was just excellent. Obviously, the injury concerns are real at this point, I think, for Riley Green, especially when you consider, you know, it's the Tommy John that he's recovering back from. It's also the, the you know, the stress reaction in his left fibula. Like, that's a problem. He also broke his foot. Like, he needs to stay healthy. He needs to stay on the field. But, Scott, can you walk me through, like, what is the upside for Riley Green? Because I say I think Riley Green has the potential to be and probably is when he's healthy, the Tigers' best position player. Would you agree with that? I think all around for sure, right? Because he's, he, I actually, I remember seeing him up in West Michigan and just like how loud the ball was off his back compared to the, all the other guys in, in, uh, in A-ball at the time just really blew my mind. 
he he's someone I think the upside there, if he can get the ball in the air just more consistently, right? Like we saw him do it just going to be a matter of how consistently can he make that happen when it goes away? How quickly does it come back? I think there's a chance to be like a I'd love to say 25 home runs. I think that'd be difficult to do for him in Comerica Park with how he hits the ball. But I definitely think that there's like a 20 to 25 home run, like 10 to 15 stolen base guy, depending on how aggressive they want to be. I think the batting average is very real just because of how hard he can hit the ball, how he, you know, he really, he really hits the ball in the right part of his bat quite often, right? Like this isn't a guy who's just sort of like slapping stuff around. Yeah. He hits a lot of ground balls, but like that, that, those line drive rates this season, we saw a 26.3% line drive rate. Line drives are almost always hits right now. A lot of players struggle to keep a line drive rate that high consistently, you know, 25% and up is very difficult to do over any extended period of time. But Riley Green actually also in the minors showed us that he can do that, right? It's just the way that he attacks pitches. So with that, again, it caps his home run upside a little bit. But that's also his path to being a 280, 300 hitter because he can really smack those line drives all over the field. You know, Comerica's got that big, beautiful outfield that he can just slap those line drives right into the power alleys. I think there's a very, very, very good hitter there. And there's more power to come because I do think he'll find ways to get the ball in the air more consistently, really pick his spots on when he wants to try to, you know, really hit that ball to the yard. Because again, the way he attacks the ball a lot of times is I want to, you know, I can hit a double, right? I can line this, I can get a double, I can make a lot of things happen. I think as he gets more experience, he'll even more consistently find ways to get the ball up in the air when he sees, you know, when he thinks he's going to have a moment to strike. All right. Well, somebody that seemed to be able to tap into their power really well and understood how to obliterate a mistake pitch almost every time he was presented with an opportunity in 2023 was Jakey Rogers. 45, 50 plate appearances, 21 homers. Tell us what the data tells us about Jake. Yeah. So, you know, with a guy who strikes out that much, you'd think that he's really aggressive and he's really not. Uh, Jake Rogers is surprisingly patient for someone with that kind of strikeout rate. And you actually hit the nail on the head. This guy knows exactly when to swing. And when he makes contact, he crushes the ball. The big thing that Jake Rogers, you know, kind of deals with is he also misses a lot, right? He knows when to swing. He knows what pitches to attack. He just misses, right? Like he does that more often than, than a lot of players. But again, he knows when to do it. And I think that is what I love to see. I think that's how you, you know, it's not going to help his batting average all the time. It's hard to become better at making contact, especially with the kind of approach that he has. But, you know, with that kind of pop and being able to make the right decisions, right? You love seeing a young catcher. I mean, he, he gets to sit back there. He sees the pitches. He's obviously identifying what pitches he wants to attack when it comes out of the hand. Just a matter of, you know, just a little bit more consistently making contact. We could see even more from him, maybe, you know, a bit in the batting average department. We could even see more power just from getting the bat on the ball. Because again, fastballs, breaking balls, it didn't matter. He knew which ones to swing at, which ones to leave alone. Kind of a weird version of Mike Zanino at Mike Zanino's best, by the way. Didn't hit really too much, but heaven forbid you made a mistake, you made you pay. So it's a favorite topic that Ev and I are at opposite ends of the spectrum on, and we've talked about quite a bit in the last year is Javi Baez. And we talked to Bobby Scales about the technical aspects of what would help him get back on track as a hitter. I'm just curious what data tells you, because 
Used to be a great fastball hitter, crushed mistakes, crushed anything in the mistake zone that was breaking balls in the shadow zone. Just hasn't been able to make consistent hard contact on those mistakes in the past couple of years. He's always going to have an inordinate amount of swing decision problems, but he used to really make you pay when you threw a pitch in a zone that that you shouldn't. So tell us what your data is telling us about that. Yeah. And you know, I, I love Javi. Back when he was even with the Cubs, uh, I was doing this fancy stuff and I always called him a mold breaker because you always want a guy to be like Juan Soto. Walk as much as they strike out. Always swing at the right times. Javi Baez, I mean, he was so athletic. It was like, why? You know, I don't want to walk. I get this bat on the ball. That's how I go two or more bases, right? I mean, that was just the way he played. And it's hard to change that. And he even showed us as recently as when he was with the Mets that he can still do damage. The problem right now is that pitchers never give him anything to hit. Right. I mean, he we have a stat that we call pitch hit ability, right, to try to give some context to how often do pitchers throw this guy anything worth touching. Javi Baez is basically he gets the fewest pitches that damage can be done with. Right. So we talk about bat. You know, the way we measure it is how likely is this pitch to create a batted ball? Right. And for most of the time, Javi, you know, league average is like 17 and a half percent. Javi Baez at times is looking at like the pitches he gets 14 percent, you know, which is basically well below the bottom 10 percent on the league. Pitchers just don't give him anything to hit because they think they can beat him without really giving him any decent pitches. And until that changes, I think it's going to be really hard for a player like him to to make a lot of next steps. He's going to have to just be I hate to say he has to be more patient because that's never really been his M.O., but at some point. you've got to let that bottom just sort of fall out and just say, okay, fine. If you guys aren't going to give me anything to hit, I got to let some of them go. I have to for, he's got to find ways to force more, you know, sort of like not, not necessarily, you know, middle, middle, but he's got to force pitchers to make pitches that are hittable. And and when he falls behind so early and counts like he does, it's just really hard to do that. That's the thing about Javi Baez is he's a head scratcher across the board, right? Mark, we talk about, him needing to get on fastball. Scott, you're talking about him needing to be more patient. I'm in the camp of you're not going to make a guy who's never been patient, more patient out of the blue. I mean, this is Javi Baez. He's going to swing at everything. I think it comes down to trying to get back on the fastball a little bit more, Mark. We've talked about that a lot. It's just so up in the air. But a guy, Scott, who's on the opposite end of the spectrum is Mark Canna. And I want to get your thoughts on him because the Tigers went out and they made a trade with the Milwaukee Brewers. They bring in this veteran outfielder in Mark Canna. They pick up his $11.5 million team option for 2024. A number that stands out to me is a 364 on base percentage from 2018 until 2023. That ranks 23rd among 155 players with 2,000 plate appearances during that stretch. That number really stands out to me when a guy is ranking 23rd among 155 players with 2,000 plate appearances with you know a, a 364 on base percentage. The Tigers want him to help influence other players. They want him to teach his approach to other guys. Just more of a, hey, watch and see how I go about this and how I try to attack individual pitchers and how I dig into the game planning and how I take the game planning into the game and then implement it. What do you know about Mark Canna? And is this a guy who really could rub off on these other guys and, and make the Tigers a much better team? Can he influence Torkelson? Can he influence Carpenter? How about Keith as he comes up? Malloy? Is Mark Canna a guy that can do that, you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that, it, you know, if that's the goal of the Tigers, Mark Canna's a great guy to go after because 
the best thing he does is decision making. He like he he's pretty good at making contact when he swings, but it's all about the fact that he's always attacking the right pitches. You know, I've talked about this a lot, but decision making is so huge. He's really limited by the amount of power he has in the bat. Like he's never going to be a a 30 home run guy. He did hit 26 home runs once. That was in 2019 when everybody hit 26 home runs. You know, we had the rabbit ball and we had all that with Kenna. He's all about like, okay, I'm going to pick the right times. Yeah, sure. I might only hit 15 home runs a year, but I can hit for a good batting average. I can get on base a ton because I am. He forces pitchers to really attack him in the zone because he's just not going to let you. He's not going to let you, you know, beat beat you with. He's not going to let pitchers beat him with a, just a bunch of stuff in the dirt or something like that. I mean, he's the kind of player who you want your young players to look to and say, hey, this guy knows when to swing. You're not sure when to swing. Ask Mark. Mark, you know, throughout his career, Mark Hanna has been someone who knows what pitches to attack. He's got a very clear plan at the plate. You really see that in the decision making. You see that with what he's trying to do when he's at the plate. I think that is something that we'd love to see get passed on to these younger hitters because, you know, it's tough. I love Miggy, but Miggy always had the physical ability to say, well, I can hit anything and I can hit anything hard. Mark Hanna's not that guy. He had to learn what pitches he can attack, what, what ones he can't. It made him very, very good mentally. And I think that is something that I think hopefully other players, especially the young guys, look to as they look to make that next step to becoming more consistent players. Well, this is all very interesting stuff. We have a few more players we want to talk about. But first, we're going to take a break. All right, we're back. So much information about so many players. A personal favorite of both Evan and myself is a guy like Andy Abanez. Last 250-plus at-bats, 127 WRC+, really hit the hell out of baseball for the last 10 weeks of the season. It's going to probably see more time than we think if he keeps hitting like that. So what can you tell us about a player like Andy Abanez? Yeah, so he's mostly like a hit tool guy, right? Like just good at getting his bat on the ball. He's he's been around for a little while. I had I remembered that he was good in September. I'd forgotten just how good and different of a player he was in September compared to really what he's been his entire career. Almost as many walks as strikeouts uh, in September, playing as almost a full time player. We saw in our decision value stat that he just something clicked for him. He was making some of the best decisions he'd ever made in the you know as a pro anyway. And he also started hitting a bunch of line drives that kind of started in August. He was finding ways to really put, you know, hit the ball, those line drives. And as a hit tool guy, I mean, he's never someone that's going to hit 25, 30 home runs, right? That's just not the type of player Ibanez is, but slapping line drives around like that. I mean, that's a way for him to be a very successful major leaguer. He's a guy with, you know, quite a bit of versatility. I think, you know, they he, throughout his career, he's played sort of around uh, all different positions. This is a very valuable player. Even if he can't go back to being like that, you know, 12% walk rate, 14% strikeout guy and goes back to more his career norms in walks and strikeouts. If you just, you know, some of those line drives and just being a consistent guy trying to hit, you know, again, singles and doubles, but that's fine for Andy Ibanez because he's got that hit tool. He's always had, I mean, when he was way back when he was a prospect, that was the thing that really carried his entire profile. I think he can be that. I think that's someone who 
especially for these Tigers, is very valuable, especially when you start getting a little further down in the lineup. You want these scrappy hitters like Ibanez can be. So I, I like it. I like him a lot. You know, in fantasy, he's not always super relevant because playing time's a little bit of a, a question mark and he doesn't have that big power. But man, in real life, that guy really adds value and adds some depth to the lineup that is is not always easy to find. So a very interesting player last year. He's not going to get nearly as many at-bats in 2024 as he did in 23, just based on the lineup changes. But Zach McKinstry had a truly bizarre season. Was not really good for 22 weeks out of 26 weeks. But for four weeks in May, arguably one of the most interesting, effective, hitters in Major League Baseball. Hit 310, walked 20 times. I'm just curious, normally somebody that had very good decision making and you know pretty elite capacity to walk, put it all together for 30 days and then on each side of that just really didn't do much of anything. You know, tell us a player like that, I mean, I guess anybody can get lightning in a bottle, but usually somebody that has pretty good decision-making, it helps them have a higher level of consistency than he showed last year. What kind of things did you know you see and what's that a predictor of getting maybe 40 or 50% the amount of at-bats that you know he got in 2023 and 2024? Yeah, and, and you know, I... I think he does make good decisions. However, throughout his career, he was, I was surprised to see, at least based on our model, the inconsistency in decision making for him. And I can't really put my finger on why I wasn't able to find like a specific thing and wait, you know, was it based on how pitchers were attacking him and finding different weaknesses? What I did also find though is that he was really good at when he swings, he puts his bat on the ball. And that is a that is one way to make a lot of luck for yourself, right? Just putting balls in play. That's something Zach McKinstry can do. And, you know, again, I, I love that he's versatile. I think the left-handedness is also very, very good. You know, you have a guy that you can just throw in against lefties or against righties who can be a real scrappy kind of hitter for you. It was cool to let him lead off for a little while during that one magical run in May. I remember it well. It blew my mind. I'm not sure we'll see that again. He is someone who's willing to take a walk. He is someone who can put his bat on the ball a lot, which does mean he could be, you know, he he can be a decent player, but I I think he might be a little overextended as a full-time major leaguer for a team that really wants to start setting their sights on the playoffs soon. So again, he's a nice guy to have, but, you know, part of the thing about that contact ability, really good at getting his bat on the ball. It also makes him very aggressive in two strike counts as well. Our model shows that he was much more aggressive than the average player in two strike counts, which again, it doesn't turn into strikeouts because he makes contact when he swings, but it does lead to weak contact a lot of times. And I think sometimes that's part of the inconsistency because of how much he's relying on batted ball luck. So that just kind of comes and goes. So I, I like, I like McKinstry. Like as a player, it's just it's hard to say, like, let's rely on that guy 160 times. Right. Like that's sort of where I'm at with McKinstry. And I'm kind of in that same boat with a couple other guys, Akil Badu and Nick Maton. Those two guys probably more on the outside looking in right now, maybe fighting for the final spots on the roster. I don't think either of them start the start the year with the Tigers, especially not Akil Badu, just considering where the outfield is at. Maybe Nick Maton could come in there and make a difference if they don't like Zach McKinstry coming out of camp. I could see. Maton is the guy that could potentially take some playing time from Zach McKinstry. But still, like, are there any positives from Badu and Maton that still make them attractive, 
even after underwhelming performances in the past, because I'm not on board with really either of those players at this point. Is there any reason to believe in them as potential difference makers for the Tigers in the future still or, or no? Well, I've got a couple hundred dollars in trading cards of Akil Badu in my basement that really has me holding out hope that he turns into oh turns boy. into a high level player. But so Badu, I mean, I his rookie season was one of these things where like it really caused me to sort of think about how I analyze players because he was like three different guys his rookie season. He was this free swinging power guy. Then he was this crazy patient, like twenty percent walk guy. Then he kind of became the Akil Badu we see now, which is willing to walk a little bit, mostly trying to put his bat on the ball. Doesn't hit the ball super hard. Hits a, you know, hits quite a few balls on the ground, but crazy fast, right? And that's more of a role player than it is anything else. And that's sort of what Badu is is going to be stuck being unless he makes some big changes while he's down in AAA. I agree with you. I think that's probably where he goes. Uh, this outfield's already pr- kind of crowded. He really just needs... I use this, I keep talking about decision-making, but that's such a big thing for so many players. He's someone that really needs to find some consistency there because he's not the type of guy that can hit everything he swings at, right? He, he's not like a Zach McKinstry type. That's just not in his in his toolbox. So he'll have to find some ways to attack the right pitches. Maybe he becomes a full-time player, but he looks more like a fourth outfielder sort of cap right now. Uh, Nick Maton doesn't quite have the physical gifts of Akil Badu, right? Like he, he's not nearly as fast, those kinds of things, but he is really good at, dis- uh, at decision-making. It's weird. If you smash those two guys together, you've got a really good like third outfielder, but unfortunately it's two guys, which means you've got like two fourth or fifth outfielders and, and that makes it tough. Maton hits a lot of weak stuff up in the air. Fly balls are really great if you're strong, but if you're not, if you don't have elite power, fly balls are almost always outs. Right. Like if you can hit a ball in the air 300 feet, it means you're better than baseball than me. Right. But you're also going to bat zero. Right. 300 foot fly balls always out. So it's just kind of the way they work. So, you know, again, those two guys smash together. Really good player. Individually, their weaknesses make them sort of on the outside looking into this roster. For sure. Hey, one guy we didn't ask you about either. Justin Henry Malloy. Where are you at on him coming in as a rookie? Cole Keith, obviously, I mean, at this point, he's, he's guaranteed a spot at second base. Has to be at this point. Malloy, I think he's probably on the roster. Mark doesn't think so. It's a little bit up in the air, I would say. I think he definitely has to earn his way there a little bit more than Cole Keith does in spring training. But for Malloy, Scott, where are you at on him? Obviously, the walks stand out, but a lot of strikeouts as well. And then when he does make contact, he does create some damage. What do you think? Yeah, so I talked earlier about how when you see a guy go from the minors to the majors, you should often expect that strikeout rate to jump up about five points. The problem for Malloy is that puts him in that 30% range. And if that's what were to happen, it'd be hard for him to really, I think, make a difference on the roster. It's hard for guys to succeed with 30% strikeout rates. You have to have very special skill sets to do that. The way he could do it, of course, is he walks a ton. He is a very patient hitter. Malloy. So, I mean, like 18% last year. I mean, every stop in the minors, he was walking just all the time. So I think that there's a path there. I'd really like to see how he does, even just in spring training against those major league guys, those guys with multiple breaking pitches, those guys that can throw lots of stuff for strikes that can attack you in different ways. That's when I think we'll really see, does that 18% walk rate, almost 25% strikeout rate, apply to the major league level. You see a lot of guys with this kind of thing, and it can take time for these sort of players to adapt to the major leagues because the habits that you develop in the minors, especially when it comes to taking bunches of walks, it's sort of like if you played in Little League, right? You could always walk if you wanted to, right? You just had to not swing. You'd you'd walk a lot, right? It's obviously harder than that in the minor leagues, but 
compared to the majors, that's a huge step. The amount of quality strikes you get, that's that's such a big thing. So it's really hard. I, I liked the power we saw, but again, this profile is always one that just makes me pause when it comes to the major leagues because if that strikeout rate's up, you know, 30, you know, 30, 35%, and the walks don't come over with them, all of a sudden you've got a guy that just can't stay at the major league. So I'm not saying he can't. I'm saying it it's one where I'd be holding my breath, watching those first couple games closely to see is this someone who can handle major league pitchers who again can just attack you in more ways than a minor league guy who often has one or two pitches that you're actually worried about. All right. So I saved the most polarizing for last. I saw you tweet a little bit of info about it. We talked a little bit about it before you came on at the top of the show, but I just want to touch for a minute on Parker Meadows. And you even acknowledged that the more you dug into it, the more interesting it became. So share with us what you think about it and we'll give us, we'll give you our two cents. And we're kind of at the slight opposite ends of the spectrum about him. He is an interesting player, though. He is. I mean, he's been around forever. Like ever, It feels like ever since I started watching baseball, it's like Parker Meadows has been somewhere in the periphery. Like, I mean, he came in in 2018. He is someone who, I mean, this, the speed part, the stolen bases, I think that part's pretty safe to sort of assume. Like, we know that this guy can run. We know that he can steal bases. My question has always been, is this someone who can be a consistent leadoff hitter for the Tigers? Right. Like that's really the role I think that that would make the most sense. He was quite good at making decisions in his first run in the major league based on based on our model around, you know, he sort of ends up around like the 75th percentile in the league. That's excellent for a rookie. You know, it's one of the skills that's harder to bring over. We also saw that his contact ability was really good. When he swings, he puts his bat on the ball. And it doesn't sound like much, but you know. Being able to do that is a really, really big deal. You can't miss strikes, right? And, and Parker Meadows isn't someone who misses too many strikes. That's key. What happened throughout the season, and the thing that sort of has me really excited, is his decision-making specifically against breaking balls. They were a big challenge for him to start. You know, our metrics had him around like the bottom 10 percentile in the league and making decisions like when to swing against breaking balls. Basically, just keeps getting better and better as the season goes. By the end of the season, he's living up in like the 90th percentile range in how well he's able to determine when to swing at a breaking ball, when not to. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean this is what he is forever now. He's a you know top, top of the league kind of player and knowing when to swing at breaking balls and when not to. But the fact that he had that upward trajectory makes me think, man, if this guy can be just an average an average decision maker against breaking balls with this kind of contact ability, this kind of speed, that's a leadoff hitter. That's a guy that you can use in that role, but, you know, especially as a, you know, as a lefty who's going to get to face a lot of uh, righties. It, that's, that's really what I'm after. And I'm not, again, decision making is not like a thing that just stays constant. Like once you get to a mark, you just stay there, right? Like even Juan Soto has his ups and downs. But again, if he can just even start out the year or, you know, overall, just be like average to above average and making those decisions against breaking balls. I think we've got ourselves a, a center fielder long term. Um, you know, I, I knew the names you talked about. But, you know, we all love Grandy. You know, we love Dawson Jackson. I, I think that Meadows can be that sort of leadoff hitter, but it's really just going to depend on can he continue to make those good decisions against breaking balls? Because if he goes back to what he was to start, which is, you know, a, a below average player against breaking balls, again, major leaguers are just too good at attacking you with those. Every team is really like, they, I mean, the league has changed over the last decade. Everybody throws breaking balls. It's what it's all about. 
I mean, we have tons of pitchers now who throw more breaking balls and fastballs. So he's got to be able to keep up that decision-making against the breakers. If he does, it's a leadoff guy. If not, uh, he starts to look more like a bottom-of-the-order type of hitter, maybe one that still plays every day because I think that he's a pretty good defender out in center field, even in a slightly crowded outfield situation they've got in Detroit. But, I mean, that's really, to me, what swings it either way because he's not ever going to be like a third, fourth, fifth guy, right? He's either going to bat at the top of the lineup or the bottom. The way he stays at the top, again, the decision-making against the breakers because of that contact ability. Otherwise, he goes to the bottom. Interesting take. Interesting things about hopefully a very interesting player in 2024. Scott, look, you have filled us with so much information on so many of these Tiger players. We'd love to have you back on during the summer, kind of get back and see how some of these things worked out, get an analysis and see who progressed and who maybe regressed. We can't thank you enough for coming on with us. We wish you good luck. Where you, why don't you tell everybody where they can find your stuff again and, and what your Twitter handle is so that they uh, know how to find you. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I love talking about the Tigers. And again, in fantasy, I don't always get to do that. So, so this was very fun for me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at if the chew fits, if the C-H-U fits. And you can find my work over at PitcherList, just PitcherList.com. Same as, as Nick Pollock. I write an article every Wednesday ranking the top 150 hitters for fantasy. And, you know, I update that. You'll find a ton of these, you know, these charts I'm talking about. You can find a link to them over uh, on PitcherList.com. And also you read my, you know, I've got the top 200 hitters for fantasy. I've got these charts all over that thing. So they're a really, really cool tool. If you just, even if you just want to say like, how did this player change over the year? Something that we don't always talk about enough until after it's done, but it happens throughout the season. So if you get nothing else from me, take a look at some rolling charts when you're analyzing a player and just see how they're changing. Uh, it, it, it'll give you a lot of things to either be very excited or worried about at times, but but it's a lot of fun and it gives you a lot of insight on what these players are actually doing uh, instead of just, well, when I saw him yesterday, he looked good. Yeah, that's really good information. And for all of our listeners out there, I hope they take advantage of it. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I hope you have a happy new year and we'll get you back on at some point this summer, all right? Sounds like a blast. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Had a lot of fun. Thanks, Scott. That was pretty good, huh, Mark? So much information. I mean, for two guys that all they do is ingest information all day about baseball players that was even a lot of information for us well we got to get him back on and we got to talk more about the swing decisions you know halfway through the season maybe at the all-star break sometime around then to see i find that to be very 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 fascinating and i mean i am all of a sudden i'm regretting myself for saying that parker meadows was going to hit like 215 so i'm now i'm regretting that i'm also not so sure about justin henry malloy being the real deal anymore alex anthropolis might have fleeced scott harris there on that one now I'm a little bit worried. We'll have to see it until we really make our final decisions. But but again, like that's just really interesting stuff, right? Like maybe I was wrong about Parker Meadows, like really understanding what the swing decisions were like and the choices that Meadows was making. Like if I would have known that, I might have projected a little bit differently. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to hold true to it. I think the league is difficult. But that's just an example of, you know, kind of what Scott has brought to the table here that now I, I really didn't have any idea about. And now I know. And that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. He's he's an interesting player. I got a feeling he'll hit ninth, you know, which is basically double leadoff. So I got a feeling Hinch might have that in mind. And if he progresses, they'll figure out what to do about that. But it's been a lot of data, a lot of time. It's the middle of January. We got tons of baseball. I think you're going to start seeing some baseball things start happening 
this next week, but it's time for us to get out of here. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Kirk Crawford and Anjanette Delgado. I want to try to remind everybody to rate, comment, and subscribe. For my partner, Evan Petzold, I'd like to remind everybody to go in peace. Peace.